We're going to talk about some things that might be posing a risk to your organization, underreported crypto theft vulnerabilities that you should be concerned about, 91 ransomware attacks, 1 billion person data breach. Welcome to the State of Cybercrime podcast. I'm your host, Matt Radelak from Veronis. The following podcast has been adapted from a live show. Check out our YouTube channel for the full video and sign up on our website to be notified of upcoming live events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of Cybercrime. Want to give a shout out right off the bat here to our special guest, the myth, the security research legend, like Prince and share just one name. Devere. Devere, how's it going? Thanks for joining us today. Everything's amazing. Thank you for having me. So I've been waiting, I think, almost two weeks to say this to everybody, but I want to move it right into the show today. And I hope we have plenty of move it puns as we crack right into it. We'll go over some of our usual segments. We'll start with, is there any good news? We'll jump on the highway to the danger zone and talk to you about a couple of threat actors and exploits that you should be aware of. We'll round it out with a few vulnerable vulnerabilities. So with that, let's crack right into it. So we always like to start out by talking about whether or not there's any good news. Oftentimes in cyber, everything is doom and gloom. And we really want to make sure that we cover the fact that sometimes the good people do get it right. Just to get things kicked off, let's talk about the latest privacy find from Meta. So what started as a complaint back in 2013 from privacy activist Max Schrems has turned into over a billion dollar privacy violation for Meta, beating out Amazon for the largest fine awarded by the EU by about half a billion dollars. Now, I'm not sure if this is an award that I'd want to have, but Meta has earned top spot in terms of fine being issued by EU regulators. Now, they've got until October to stop transferring EU user data to the U.S., but they've made it known that they've got both plans to appeal the decision. And like past experience would tell us, likely they're going to do everything that they can to A, avoid paying the fines and B, stop the collection and transfer of information. Now, this case highlights the strict and rather conflicting differences between U.S. privacy laws and privacy guidelines and EU privacy law and guidelines. And David, I know this is a topic that you're really passionate about. What do you think is going to happen here? Is this actually going to have any teeth or any long-term effect on data security and data privacy? It's interesting. You throw around these billion-dollar numbers and privacy violations, and it's clear, I think we can all assume that Meta knew what was coming by taking the profile data from the EU citizens and moving them to the US. And Matt, you actually, I think, had some information on why they're doing this, right? Yeah, we went back to the testimony from Mark Zuckerberg, then CEO of Facebook, now I guess still CEO, chairman of the board of Meta, talking about how the algorithm performs better the more data that it's fed. So it's almost as if, and I wonder if this is a billion-dollar business decision, if we could get a Zuckerberg on the line, maybe we could ask him to join us for an episode of State of Cybercrime and ask him ourselves. Yeah, you you better get back to that, David. But what I would want to know, is it actually worth it to try to deal with the fine, whether I'm sure they're going to settle for some amount that's less than $1.3 billion? Are they actually making more money from pulling that data in than the cost of dealing with the regulators. I think that's the core business question that's on my mind. 
Yeah, and imagine what that means. The data itself is worth more than the $1.3 billion of fine that they're going to incur by continuing to bring the data over from the EU to the US. Now, that's not the only bit of good news, though. There is something related to a hacking forum. I want to say, is it called the RAID forums, Devere? And there's some leak of user data, but I don't think people should be confused here. It's not user data that was found on the hacking forum. It's user data of users of the hacking forum, right? Correct. I might not be shedding any tears at the moment regarding the RAID forums, but just to explain it and to address it, RAID forums was one of the most popular platforms regarding any sort of marketplace and of tooling, of exploits, of data leaks, of uh, automations required in order to carry out attacks against companies, services, individuals, and whatnot. Everything related to create stuffing attacks and automations was actually shared among great forms and great forms users, which again, it's a marketplace. Anyone could sell their own inventory over there. Anyone from threat actors to skiddies and the fact that it was taken down around 2022. And since then, threat actors were looking, and again, skiddies were looking for any sort of other platforms to be using in that sense. Now, I'm not talking about dark web. This is completely available, was available, to be honest, from using any sort of regular browser. In that sense, the fact that this database was leaked at the end of May containing the users and PII of the actual threat actors and skiddies is interesting because we're talking about less than half a million users with their PIs and salted passwords. So we're talking about emails, date of birth, again, salted passwords and their activities. But the, I think the most interesting part of it is that it was somehow scrubbed from another 100,000 users. So nobody knows who cleaned it. Nobody knows why it was removed prior to the leak. But the fact that right now it was, again, it was taken down and leaked and a lot of people are interested in the usernames and the linked email addresses to it. Now, two things I'd want you to expand on. First, you sound pretty heartbroken, man. Did they post your account online? No, no comment. And no, second one, you said something there called skitties. For some people yes. in our audience who might not be as in the know in the sec research talk or the dark web talk as you are, what's a skitty? So a skitty is usually what is called a script kitty, a person that usually doesn't have any skill or knowledge in order to carry out sophisticated attack, but usually it's relying on automations and available tools in order to perform some very basic type of activities, such as brute force, credential stuffing, fraudulent activities. And in that sense, they are not being looked at as a real threat, as the real dog, so to speak, but usually just an, as a nuance, as something to be aware of. Now, the fact that there are also levels that any sort of user could have paid in order to get their rank up and to be able to, uh, to gain access to much more exclusive parts of the form is one of the key incentives of this form. And the person behind it was actually 21 years old at the age of his arrest. So wow. it's very interesting. Yeah, he said his form when he was 14 years old, to be honest. And one so of our audience members, Nathan, wants to know, and no need to come on it if you don't know, what is riseup.net featured right in the center of the screen? You'll see by a source who requested it to be attributed to white underscore peacock at riseup.net, 
And Nathan from our audience is curious, what is RiseUp.net? So the person who actually leaked this database was using this acronym, whitepeacock at riseup.net. It's a disposable email address. And they have this probably internal distribution that he wanted to be contacted via this email. Nobody knows how he was able to gain this database. But again, it got leaked somehow and it's all over the internet. Sure. Thanks for that. And I promise I won't look the usernames to see if Devere is in there in the list of customers. One of the things we're always talking about when we talk about good news is sometimes the ability for those to help others. And so I'd like to ask the audience a question, which is, if there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Is it the university students that are launching their cybersecurity helpline available at 311? Because college students is apparently the answer. Universities are establishing these cybersecurity clinics akin to legal clinics often offered through a lot of law schools to train students as digital security consultants and assist vulnerable small businesses and nonprofit organizations. An idea that was born out of the CISA Advisory Committee, the University of Texas at Austin is piloting a program to offer this kind of 911 sort of service as 311 to help victims of cyber attacks. Similar programs are being adopted in Alabama, California, Indiana, and Massachusetts. And it's really all about working with local organizations to either implement a plan for cybersecurity or even provide some free assistance in the event of a cyber incident. And they're actually measuring their success. You can tell they're serious when they have metrics on Uh, their ability to train students and equip them for the workforce, how many organizations that they've assisted, and what their long-term impact is on clients' cybersecurity. Now, this got me thinking, though, and David, you were the one that kind of brought this angle out for me. This is kind of ripe for an inside job, don't you think? I think that there are some risks here that college students, I think they have been a vulnerable population. And Devere, I know you had some examples of that where they can be easy targets. But on the other hand, we should also talk about some of the positive stuff there. But before we go on to, you know, what what are some of the risks that you've seen with college kids getting targeted? That's a great question. We've seen for quite some time a campaign targeting college students to be potential money mulers. Usually it's a form that's being sent to them regarding what's your bank account type, what do you do for a living, and how much money do you make? Usually in order to get that sort of information, in order to understand whether that person is relevant for this activity, for this fraudulent activity as a potential money mueller or not. And what's a money mueller? What's a money mueller? Yeah. So usually it's about setting up a company like a legal entity in order to be used for these sort of scams that are not directly linked to that actual criminal. So we have this person, which is usually setting up bank accounts, legal entities being paid by the criminals, but everything links back to him. He's not aware of the criminal activity, he's just a potential puppet just being called upon when things get messy. So in that sense. And so in other words, they're like the one with the liability, but not actually the one kind of carrying out the crime per se. Exactly. And so you've seen this kind of exploit happen, this sort of human exploit where they're like, okay, how vulnerable is this person? Let's use them as a wallet essentially to hold the money and they'll get a little piece of it. Did so, I get that right? Yeah, that's correct. We've noticed a specific campaign. Uh, I can't get into too much of the details because this is still ongoing, but usually it's a form that they need to fill, like the potential 
uh, manipulators regarding the information about themselves. And uh, another follow-up question to hear from one of our audience members, Ryan, are the raid forums only accessed via the dark web or can you get to them or could you have gotten to them via the public internet? So specifically raid forums is inaccessible anymore. It was taken over by the FBI and CISA. It's very important to mention that because they took over everything related to all the other domains and potential other names. It was accessible directly from any normal sort of browser. And now there are all sorts of contenders which are trying to be the same thing, but it might be operated by law, law agencies. And usually the actual places that these sort of criminal activities takes place, marketplaces or any sort of way to communicate between threat actors is in usually in, in much more close type of environments. We can talk about Discord, for example, like with private servers or any sort of dark web private servers, or even as we've seen previously with other thread groups that were closed close down, like such as Conti, they had their own message board servers to communicate amongst each other, which was right? exactly yeah. not exactly. It was inaccessible by external users, but it had their own sort of ability to communicate among amongst each other. So let's move it into the danger zone. I know our audience is really excited to hear about that. Now, we've learned a lot about Move It over the course of the last few weeks. And the, the question that's really been burning me, though, and David, I'll direct this at you, is this going to live up to the hype? When I saw the headline come out, Move It, this new attack technique, this new exploit, the idea of just vivid images for me took me back to 2005. I like to move it when it aired in Madagascar for the first time. Now, apparently, though, David, that's not actually the source of the song. The song is from the 90s from another band. So it wasn't made for a children's movie. I, apparently it was in a band called Real to Real. It's a very important piece of information. I had to look that up because I'm actually more of a Muppets moving right along kind of person. Um, but it's a good song, too. David and Devere, I've just got one question for you. Do we like to move it? Do we like to move it? I think we should keep moving it right along. So Devere, the reason we really brought you on in terms of new threat actors or ransomware groups like Clop that come out, you're always the person, not just that we as a company turn to, but me personally turns to really get up to speed uh, about these threats, particularly when it comes to explaining how they're operating their campaign. So would you be able to tell our audience what's going on? What is this move it thing? Where does it play in? How is the Clop ransomware group leveraging it? Tell us what you got. Sure thing. So Let's think of a potential scenario. We are working for a specific company and we want to share documents with our third parties on a regular basis. There are all sorts of ways and methods to do so, like sharing links using SharePoint and OneDrive and maintaining permissions. But in another way, in another method, if we want to do it in scale, we need to have a much, so to speak, better solution than that. Something which is much more functional for that. In that sense, there are all sorts of solutions related to file sharing between companies. And as you can see on the left, uh, we have Excelion and SolarWinds, Go Anywhere and PaperCut, which I think the main thing to remember about them is that they were all being abused and exploited using the specific vulnerabilities. Now, these sort of vulnerabilities and, and attacks were all originating from the same thread group, which has many sort of different names. I won't go into attributions. I won't go into the people behind it. But we're talking about a thread group, which is usually referred to as Fin11. And the hypothesis 
says that they were active and grouped all the way from 2014. The name CLOP is related to the ransomware that they deploy when they compromise a victim. And their main objective is absolutely financial motivation. This is why they have the name Finn and not like anything else. Specifically in this campaign, the MoveIt campaign, and again, talking about the other campaigns, we need to understand that this sort of threat group is not the skiddies that we talked earlier about. These are the real deal. They understand that there is a vulnerability regarding a product, usually by reading a bulletin um, about the vendor that releases it. They study it, they reverse it, and they weaponize it all the way to be mass exploited in the wild. The thing about the solutions that we can see on the left is that all of these solutions were exploited in the same manner by CLOP, by FIN11, in the same way. And we're talking about a very sophisticated type of exploitation and weaponization that usually it's not something that a single person can carry out, but this is type of uh, a much larger group, a very highly professional group that can study this vulnerability, understand the steps in order to reproduce a fully working exploit, to fully automate it, and to attack servers from around the world. As we go back to the first scenario that we talked about, that we need to share files between companies, these sort of servers and solutions need to be on the external premise of the organizations for our collaborators to share data with us. So this also means that these solutions are usually exposed on the outskirts, on the boundaries, external boundaries of the organization, either via on-prem or the cloud. And this is what allows it to be remotely exploited so easily when there's a vulnerability going on. Some organizations do take their time to patch. And it's quite interesting because from what we've read regarding the potential scanning attempts, it's dated all the way to March. So if we put the pieces together in, in the timeline, we may understand that Flop were waiting for a specific time in which the UK and US were both on a holiday. In the US, it was a Memorial Day. In the UK, it was a bank holiday. And when these two dates collide, they were able to mass exploit servers in the wild and steal data from these servers, while the actual people who were maintaining these servers were out in vacation. This is a very complex type of attack. I won't go into the details and bits and bytes, but it requires 12 different steps in order to be pieced together and orchestrated in order to fully compromise the server and have a web shell on it and have uh, a remote administrative tool with a C2 channel back to their servers. And from that moment that they were able to compromise the server, the ability for them to steal the data on it was super easy. They didn't even have to compromise the actual organization behind it. They could, but that was not the main objective. The main objective was to steal the information and to perform what we call double extortion, to say that if you're not going to pay for that, we're going to leak your information. If you're not going to pay for that, we're definitely going to leak you. And on top of that, you have a very limited time that you can pay unless we're going to DDoS you. We're going to DDoS your entire infrastructure. The main thing to remember that I said earlier regarding CLOP is that it's considered as a ransom ransomware type of strain. But in this sort of campaign, we did not observe, according to any sort of available report and analysis made by other vendors, that the ransomware was actually being executed and impacting the victims. Again, the main objective was to scan and exploit in mass and in scale and to steal as much information as possible in that very narrow period of time in order to gain the leverage of having these sort of secrets. 
So Devere, one thing we talked about a lot on some previous episodes of the show is how we've seen some of the ransomware groups distribute techniques that are APT grade, right? That there's almost been a shift of APT actors from purely carrying out the typical nation state type attacks to attacking organizations for financial gains. Would you say that just based on your experience that we're talking about APT level sophistication in an attack like this? We could say that. It's absolutely might be the case. Again, I'm not going to go into attributions, but in the sure. level of complexity showed in this campaign and the previous ones, the methodology is the same, is to target a high value product and solution that contains secrets to fully exploit it and mass exploit it in the fly. And again, achieving that sort of complexity and exploit level is not something that could be done in a very short type of manner. It requires skills, it requires labor, it requires people and a lot of knowledge into understanding exactly what was patched in the original software, how the patch looks like, comparing the difference between it, and to understand exactly how can they exploit a vulnerable version. And there was a little bit more you wanted to share about MoveIt, right? Correct. So that's the original bulletin that was made by Progress, the vendor itself of MoveIt. And again, we're talking about the bulletin. It doesn't go into technical details. It just says we have a vulnerability. It doesn't have a CVSS score. And this is how it looks like. It's the ability for an unauthenticated attacker to gain access to the database. And again, that is it. Their ability to gain full access to the server and fully compromise it, it's their level of skill. That's how it shows, because it required a lot of if, a lot of knowledge. I just want to make sure I'm clarifying this point for our audience here. What you're saying is that it's likely, you suspect, that the attackers read this bulletin and then dedicated time from experts such as yourself to craft an exploit in order to be able to carry out this supply chain attack, for lack of a better word, right? That is correct. By targeting these sort of solutions, by targeting file sharing solutions, as we've seen previously, and by reading the specific bulletins, they are able to deduct and to weaponize it in that sense. We can see that the type of servers that were still vulnerable from around the world, according to just a basic query. And we can see that the main, the sheer part of the vulnerable servers is originating from the US, which means that vulnerable servers still exist out there and victims didn't apply patches yet, either due to trying to delay or waiting for the patch management procedure to begin with, or even because there was no CVSS call yet in that sort of bulletin. Potential victims not necessarily aware of the potential ramification of not patching the server. And there was one other thing you wanted to share a little bit around like the notes that got left behind. So yeah, the notes of club that was left behind is very generic, usually being used around any sort of campaign that they're using. It's, it's pushing to the victims to be contacting them in the sense of, yeah, we stole your data. You should contact us immediately because you don't want us to leak you. And it's, Again, it's very pushy. It's very intimidating. In that sense, we do have a metaphor for referring to ransom groups, and we need to refer to them as seagulls. When you stand at the beach and you're holding a big sandwich and there are seagulls waiting for you to take a bite, you can't just feed them. You need to hold on to your sandwich because once you let them bite, they will just come back and eat your whole sandwich. In that sense, as a personal opinion, I would advise and recommend not to feed the seagulls, not feed and not pay the ransomware, the ransom to these ransom groups. 
Yeah. And I think that's a hot topic, probably worth an entire episode to debate on, Demir, is whether or not an organization should pay the ransom and the pros and the cons of doing so. The other thing, David, and you and I are always really passionate about this. When we see these ransomware groups really start to look like a business, right? They've got their seven-step plan. They've got a warranty call today, act now. They're creating their sense of urgency. They've got a signature line. They even thrown something in the bottom that says, hey, if you're a government entity, don't worry. We already deleted your data. You weren't the person we had intended to target. Do you predict, David, there's going to be more of this kind of, I don't want to call it white glove ransomware, but this productization, this branding associated with ransomware? Well, clearly it's a pretty efficient operation and we've seen it now multiple times with these different campaigns where they're reading the exploit, you know, reading the notices, reverse engineering the exploits and then weaponizing them in a way that's certainly not haphazard. So it's almost as if, okay, we probably have a queue of vulnerabilities to check out. And when we see a juicy one, we get that into a queue and then we run our playbook. As long as there are lots of data that people rely on and that we depend on it, there's no reason to think that attackers won't continue to try to exploit our dependence. Uh, Now, not just to give Klopp all of the show here today, Devere, there was something you wanted to tell us about Alpha V, aka Black Cat as well. That's correct. This is from an interaction between a victim to Alpha V, in which you can see that the negotiations, Alpha V is coming very strong and hard, to be honest pushing the victim into, actually intimidating the victim, talking about how much time do they left in order to pay the ransom. And you can read all about us, about our uh, about our reputation and what we stand for. And all of a sudden, at the end of the conversation, at the end of the negotiations, the victim says, you can go ahead and leak off our information that will allow us to further restore our data. And our top management is saying, we won't pay you half a million. At the top, we're going to pay you 50K, that's all, take it or leave it. So Alpha is trying to muscle up and say, that's gonna cost you, we're gonna DDoS you, and that's just it. So in that sense, I think it was very interesting to see these sort of negotiations because usually it's not something that gets exported, it's not something that gets revealed. At the end, these are the things that usually are being talked about in a very tightly manner, and nobody talks about the negotiations. In that sense, the victim was taking a stand, which is very uncommon in that sense. Yeah, just saying post the data online. Yeah, exactly. And they they did. It was from April. And yeah, either the victim was able to indeed uh, restore their data, or we can probably assume that the data was not sensitive enough for them to be worried about in that sense. And one of our audience members, Devere, asked you a question from Jose. How reliable is the statement at the bottom that the Ansomer group has erased the data from governments and police departments. I'll, I'll take a stab the, at it. I don't. I think it's just basically saying they're not going to ask for the ransom, whether or not they've deleted or not. I, I'm unsure of. I have a feeling that maybe they're selling that data to someone else who has no interest in sharing it. Correct. Um, so let's jump on in to our next segment on vulnerable vulnerabilities. Now, first and foremost, and and Devere, I I guess there's a reason that we had you today. It sounds like your team, Bronus Threat Labs, is finding some vulnerable vulnerabilities of their own. You want to talk to us a little bit about imposter syndrome, this UI bug in Visual Studio? Yeah, sure. I think our team likes to do all sorts of shenanigans and finding all sorts of vulnerabilities so we can report it in a very responsible manner to the vendors, making sure that 
no one else is able to exploit it. We've reported several vulnerabilities in the past for Microsoft. And I think this is the third one in the past 10 months, I believe. And it's quite interesting. It was a very, we thought about it as something very basic, which we felt that maybe it shouldn't be reported to Microsoft. Maybe it's really that obvious that it's, again, it's not, not something worth reporting. And when we reported to Microsoft and we said, hey, we are able to take this action, Microsoft immediately responded saying that this is something that should be fixed and got the highest priority. And indeed, they also rewarded the researcher with a bounty. Talking about the vulnerability itself, it was the ability for a threat actor to a potential attacker to mimic and spoof a Visual Studio extension that would look exactly as an original one, as assigned by one of the vendors, one of the companies, simply by uh, adding new lines to the file manifest of that extension and just writing signed by this. Our ability to spoof the signature for an extension and to further implement all sorts of payloads in that sense proved to be as a good use case for what we're trying to achieve. We try to show and demo that developers might be targeted just as any other ordinary user, specifically due to the fact that they're able and indeed working on secrets and PII, sorry, on IP of the company as part of their development lifecycle. And the ability to compromise the developer is not a trivial thing because Again, we're talking about using phishing emails with attachments or pulling a victim to download a malicious extension. And that's so compromising the victim and by making sure that they're infected with the spoofed extension. And that's all getting tracked as CVE 2023-28299. Now, that's not the only vulnerable vulnerability that's got people talking. Let's hear from, I don't know if I would call you Mr. DDoS or Dr. DDoS himself. But David, you know, you're always passionate about talking about denial of service attacks and distributed denial of service attacks. So talk to us about this hacktivism-led impact to Outlook. Yeah, it's interesting. The Outlook webmail has had some impact from a DDoS attack that Anonymous Sudan has taken credit for. This isn't the only Microsoft property that's had trouble. Azure has been hit. OneDrive has been hit, if you look at it, and it's the same group. They're actively trying to patch and respond to this DDoS attack. They've said, no, we got it, we got it, but then we don't got it. So Outlook, not so good so far. The thing that I thought was interesting about this attack as I did some research was how little there was out there just technically, you know, when I'm looking at DDoS attacks, I'm usually expecting something that's exploiting UDP or ICMP, some of these protocols that are easy to spoof and create walls of traffic that are hard to miss. In this attack, it seems like there's very little UDP surface area. You know, there are a few ports out there on these services. There's some load balancers that have been mentioned in a couple of places, but more details to come. Obviously, it's no small feat to do uh, a massive DDoS attack on this pretty pretty highly used service. So I think the last story that we want to share, it really, Lazarus Group is added again, this time stealing 35 million crypto. Now, though this is a fairly small amount of crypto, this theft does bump them over $1 billion in money stolen from crypto wallets. Lazarus Group, a North Korean hacker group, is being blamed by blockchain analytics group Elliptic 
for stealing $35 million in crypto from Atomic Wallet. Afterwards, it was observed that they used the Sinbad Mixer. And in this block-like chain of events that we've seen before, where the Lazarus Group will go after somebody like Atomic Wallet, or in the past it was Ronin and Horizon Bridge, one crypto researcher, Zach XBT, is basically calling the kettle Lazarus Group, right? It's the walks like a Lazarus Group, you know, washes their coins and launders their coins like a Lazarus Group. It probably is one. Now, for those of you that haven't heard of this before, Atomic Wallet is a decentralized wallet service. It's got around five million users. And what this story poses to me is it seems like if you're going to use, you know, these, we'll call them alternative wallets, right? As opposed to maybe some of the mainstream cryptocurrency banks that maybe has certain anonymization features that you desire, making it arguably harder to track your transactions. Although I thought that wasn't possible, but every time we see a breach involving a crypto wallet or the feds, it seems like they've got it all figured out how to track crypto coins, even ones that going through a mixer. Are these alternative kind of pro-anonymous wallets, are they safe? Is this the right place for you to store your cryptocurrency? It's a very good question, Matt. Which one is safe? And is crypto- yeah, is are any of them safe? Or I think that even begs the question, is crypto at all something that you want to play in when you've got groups like this out there and emptying out wallets of millions of users and almost, again, a billion dollars in the last two years of stolen coins and laundered coins? Well, I think really there's a bunch of risk vectors with any place you store money. And with cryptocurrency, I think people that are putting money there tend to have a bigger risk appetite in general than folks that don't. So whether that there's a bigger risk reward here tough to say. I do always want to say, you know, the show is made possible by you, our audience. In addition to that, big shout out to our guest star today, Devere. Devere, I hope you join us on the show again sometime. I think our audience really loved having you here. I know I personally did. Thanks so much for coming and joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Fanny. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our audience uh, for tuning in to another episode of State of Cybercrime. And we hope to see you guys again next time. 